uh, my name is Cesar Espinosa, and I'm executive director of FIEL, but I'm also undocumented and unafraid. Today, we got a good decision by the Supreme Court. We got the court decided to stand on the right side of history and allow 700,000 young people to continue to live their lives, to continue to live their dreams, and to continue to make America what it already is, thanks to immigrants. Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and something is shifting in American politics in a good way, a very good way, a surprisingly good way. After years of unrelenting and escalating racism and white nationalism from the man who currently occupies the Oval Office, something significant has changed in the past month or so. Not only is the whole world marching and expressing explicit kind of shocking support for black lives, but the public opinion polls show meaningful majority support for the protest. When Trump first took office, most white people opposed the Black Lives Matter movement by a 20% margin. As of last week, there had been a 30-point shift among whites, with whites now supporting the movement by a 7% margin focusing on whites because people of color have always been supportive of the protest. And we've seen the shift play out in real time on the biggest of stages. The president of the United States was utterly humiliated in Tulsa, Oklahoma last weekend when he tried to put on one of his signature hate-filled, misogynistic white nationalist rallies that masquerade as a presidential event. You've probably seen the video of the massive number of empty seats in the arena. They thought they'd have 55,000 people and just 6,000 showed up. Apparently, even Trump supporters are mindful and worried about getting coronavirus. But even more important, and I watched that damn speech so you didn't have to, the visceral energy that propelled him in 2016 and has intimidated all Republicans ever since was missing. The white nationalism shtick isn't working the same way it used to. The lines came off as tired and ineffective. And then there's this iconic photo when he got back to the White House that night him walking from the helicopter with his tie undone, his head down, clutching a crumpled red MAGA hat, defeated man. And what was revealed in that rally was no fluke. The polls in the presidential race have moved decidedly against Trump. Biden leads by nine points in the national polls. In the battleground states, which are more closely fought, he leads by an average of six points. And in May, he outraised Trump's campaign for the first time. And Biden hadn't even left his basement in months. And on top of all of that, the Supreme Court last week issued two major and surprising decisions that will have profound implications for millions of Americans and for our conception of who we are as a nation. Specifically, are we a country that is primarily for and run by straight, white, landowning Christian men? Or are we, in fact, a pluralistic, multiracial democracy, a democracy in color? So to guide us through that conversation, I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Charlene Chang. Hi, Charlene. Well, we're grappling with a once-in-a-hundred-years global pandemic and a 400-years-overdue racial reckoning. We actually had some good news last week. Are you able to pause and appreciate it at all? Yeah, the two recent Supreme Court decisions were, I, I definitely got to appreciate them because they were such such good news and we we need that kind of news so badly you've heard me say it a number of times i'm always like 2020 bring us something good right it's like anytime i can get uh, a little bit of good news and in this case it was big good news 
I really try to take it in because um, who knows what else 2020 has in store for us. Yeah. I keep joking like this is a good time for them. The Martians. Well, I've seen it like it's like a meme online. It's like, this is a good time for the Martians to be like, let's land. But I, I will just take all the good news I can get. And I know we're going to really get into that today. So we'll talk more about that later. But, uh, you know, another highlight from last week, definitely good news, was that we got to do our last episode with Elizabeth Warren and my daughter. Got to ask her a question. So we're still pretty high on that. And every now and then we'll turn to each other like, did that really happen? probably one of the highlights of the pandemic, which is, was a weird thing to say. And so she was saying to me, uh, when I tell my friends, I don't want to sound like I'm bragging. So how, you know, <laughs> how, how do I, she was very sweet. I'm, I, there's things that I definitely am very different than my daughter. Cause I was like, by the time I could tell people, I was like, by the way. And so like, I would, I think that if I were her, I'd be like, oh, you know, guess what I did this summer? I got to interview Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, no, she was definitely the star of the show. Lots of people were commenting on Kaylee was so great. It was so great to see. And Warren is so good with girls. And so oh, that was really a great Really moving. Yeah. And yeah, so I think that my daughter is probably, like, I just keep joking. Like that was her bar. That was her first interview ever. <laughs> so she's probably like, okay, bring it on. Who next? You know, the, the bar is pretty high. Yeah. So today, as you had mentioned earlier, we're going to discuss a little bit more about what you were talking about in terms of this shift that is definitely happening that many of us are noticing in this moment, 2020. And we're, we're going to do a deep dive today into really understanding specifically what happened at the Supreme Court last week and what it means for all of us for Democrats, for progressives, and what it might mean for November, and especially just to get an inside look at how it all works. So today we will have an expert guest who will be joining us, who will be offering us specific insight into the Supreme Court, someone who can help us essentially like pull back the curtain and help us understand how it operates behind the scenes, which is something that I know for me has always been kind of like a mystery, if more so than any body or branch it's kind of like ooh, supreme court it's all mm -hmm. very mysterious yeah, by design. Um, yes i guess so uh, and i know steve you said earlier again you noticed things shifting i wanted to hear you say more about that and why you think this is happening and why now yeah so I, there, there are two things happening in the country right now and they're very much on a collision course for this fall and for november and so the one thing is the actions of the trump administration right which have been so horrific in so many ways and which is just continuing on a pace even more emboldened, frankly, since the escaping the impeachment. So that's the one thing. But the other reality, right, in terms of the country at large, especially electorally, Trump has been steadily losing almost from the moment he took office. And though it's, it's hard to see and appreciate that because it doesn't feel like that on a day-to-day -day basis, but that's what the actual record is, right? So looking at, you know, from, from 2017, where Democrats came surprisingly close to flipping many of these special elections in, in seats that Republicans had won handily previously, followed by 2018, right, the Democratic wave, flipping 41 seats in the House, making Pelosi speaker, picking up two Senate seats. And then completely overlooked and underappreciated, and I didn't even really grasp this until fairly recently, is that since Trump took office, Democrats have won almost a quarter of the gubernatorial seats that used to be held by Republicans. In eight states, they flipped the seats and really should have won Florida and Georgia. Florida, Georgia in particular was stolen from us. That would have meant 10 flips out of the 32 that were held by Republicans. So that's a profound 
trend, which is really undeniable at this standpoint. It's really great to just remember all of those wins. Basically, I think a lot of times we just tend to remember the losses, but I know that that's all those things did happen. And it's good to keep all that in mind. But there is the one thing that you know you and I have talked about, or I've brought up before, Steve, to you a few times, which is that I know that many people and most Democrats in particular, progressives, live in this kind of state of it's like a terror, like a, a real deep-seated fear that still it does overall feel like we're losing because of Trump and his actions and his administration, losing essentially what we have built and gained over the years prior, and a, sort of a constant fear, worry that we're going to lose in November and that Trump still has all of his supporters and that his supporters are out there and that he, they, he, they get egged on by him and it, they believe what he says. And he's gotten, got them through the, what I kind of say, created a reality where it's through the looking glass, where literally he will just tell lies and they just believe they're true. And so he still has them believing that they're the nation's answer to making uh, America great again, AKA making America white again, America for whites only, for white privilege, and that those supporters might just all end up coming out in droves and getting other more people excited to come out on election day. So what do you what do you say to that? Yeah, no, it's it's I think the the pain has been so profound that it alters our perception of reality, frankly, right? And that because it, it feels like, well, he must have all the support, there must be all those people who back him. But that's actually not the case, right? So first just remember that he lost a popular vote by 3 million votes. It was not that there was this huge you know, surge of support for him. Progressive vote split. People voted third and fourth party, which is another important thing people aren't grasping is that there's not going to be a major third party candidacy this year, which is actually a very, very important reality. But more fundamentally, and I think this is the critical thing, I sometimes I talk about we have to carry ourselves with the confidence that we are, in fact, the majority. So I want to break that down a little bit, that clearly Trump has a large constituency for what is essentially white nationalist politics, or more, more precisely, straight white male Christian politics. So that, in a lot of ways, at the Kavanaugh hearing. But fortunately, that's not the majority of people. We now know that Trump's hardcore base makes up about 38% of the country. Now, in one sense, that's a remarkably large number of people. Seriously. Uh, yes. I know. But in an election, we, right, where you have to get 50% to win, it's very important that it's not that. And so it, that's the hardcore base. His favorability numbers have never fallen below that. But he's also never, ever cracked 50% in the Gallup favorability polls. So 38%, that's the core who have stuck with him and will stick with him all the way. And how did he win? So on top of that, he got another 8% of the vote. And again, he only got to 46%. And so that's, we have to hold that in mind too as we try to construct the uh, electoral path to victory. So he got an 88% on top of that hardcore 38. And of that eight, I would say about half took a chance on him. Didn't believe he was serious about the most outrageous stuff he was saying. Didn't like Hillary, rationalized their vote. I mean, I didn't believe some of this stuff when he was running around. So I'm going to, you know, round up people and this and that. I was like, no one's going to do that. That can't happen. So that's been a, you know, sobering thing for me. But I think a lot of the people who had that approach and who gave him the benefit of the doubt, a lot of those were actually college educated white people. I'll come back to that in a second. So the other 4% that he picked up is not as unapologetically pro-white as his core supporters, but I think they're susceptible to the fears and insecurities that maybe immigrants are a threat 
maybe our jobs are being taken away. But what's been happening the past three years that the 4% largely college-educated weights who took a chance on him have been appalled and consistently recoiling and moving away. And you've seen it in those election results that I was talking about, and you're seeing it in the polls now. I mean, Biden's getting about 42% of the white vote, and that's as good as it gets for Democrats. Remember, no Democrat has won the white vote since 1964 when Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act. Obama got like 42, 43%, right? Hillary had 37%. So this is as good as it gets for Democrats. And if Republican has that many white people voting against him, he's really in trouble. So big picture, and you add on to that, the pandemic and the economic dislocation, which doesn't getting enough uh, uh, attention to this, 13% unemployment, that with all of this happening, we're entering an election season now where the structural trends and the dynamics are very much against this man who's in the White House right now. So I totally hear you. <laughs> and I, it helps me in the moment, right this moment, feel better. <laughs> like there's still so many times where I'll just kind of go like, I'm freaking out because, you know, I had a friend or some friends who describe it as almost like a PTSD exactly. um, flashback to uh, you know November 2016, where we, many of us thought naively, I guess, that Hillary would win. And so I feel like we can't take anything for granted. In fact, uh, Bill Crystal, who was chief of staff to former Vice President Dan Quayle, I'm going to quote one of his tweets that he tweeted after Trump's rally. And I, I can't believe that this is the age we're living in where we can actually <laughs> quote Crystal. Yeah. Um, he's a neoconservative, but now it has just been a big critic of Trump. He tweeted, you look at the polls and think he can't win, but Trump's path to victory doesn't depend on persuading Americans. It depends on voter suppression, mass disinformation, foreign interference, and unabashed use of executive branch power to shape events and perceptions this fall. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah, now that's 100% accurate. And that's the fight that we're facing. We have majority support. We really should actually win, but it's going to be a battle to preserve the integrity of the election itself. And that's the fight that we're going to have to engage in over the next four months. Yes. And one of the institutions that in theory is supposed to help us preserve democracy and prevent dictatorship essentially is the Supreme Court. And with that, again, we had some really great news last week. So let's turn to talking about that. And let me first say that as we're recording this, we don't yet know the outcomes of a few very important cases that are upcoming that the Supreme Court will be deciding on. So that includes a major reproductive rights case and a case about forcing Trump to give up his financial records. But whatever the outcome of those cases, the fact remains that there were two very big wins recently, and those are definitely worth exploring and unpacking. For that conversation, we're bringing in an expert on the subject. Joining us today, Stacy Layton. Stacy is a partner at the San Francisco law firm Altschuler Burzen, where she practices constitutional and labor law. She has litigated cases at every level, including being named a California Lawyer of the Year for her work on a case that stopped the state of California from cutting the pay of in-home care workers by 20%. She was one of the attorneys in the immigration case where the Supreme Court just ruled in favor of the Dreamers. And after graduating first in class from Stanford Law School, she worked at the Supreme Court as a clerk for Justice Stephen Breyer. Welcome, Stacy. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I feel like I'm surrounded by lawyers here, outnumbered. <laughs> lawyers who, by the way, received their education from Stanford. Yeah, well, you're not surrounded by 
equally distinguished lawyers, right? So on the, although I managed to get through law school and pass the bar, it turned out that on the day I got my results about passing the bar, I went to celebrate at La Traviata Restaurant in San Francisco. And Stacy and her husband, Pierre, also worked at the restaurant at the exact same time, actually. So we did not know we were going to be there. We saw each other there. And so we wound up having dinner together. And then Stacy had found, they were going there because she had found out that she was first in her class at Stanford Law School. <laughs> So as I toasted her at dinner, I said, Stace, you don't have to be first in your class to pass the bar. <laughs> so, but she has gone on to much more significant things. I think particularly her time at the Supreme Court and that it is, and it's crazy because you don't even know the things about your friends necessarily, all the things they've actually done, including arguing this DACA case that we're going to talk about in a minute, which she didn't even tell me. I tried to put together her bio. I'm like, wait, that's Stacy's case. So she is, in fact, the most humble person that I know. And her husband, Pierre, once said to me, if I were smart as Stacy, I would be impossible to live with, actually. So, but thanks <laughs> so, for taking the time, Stacey. I know how busy you are. So amazing. Stacy. I know we want to jump into conversation with you. I know that um, first, though, Steve wanted to talk a little bit about the history of Supreme Court in the sense that a lot of people don't have all the understanding of its history and just think of it as always having been ex- essentially just this supreme body that makes reasoned and logical thinking and just laws that govern our society. Yeah, well, I think it's, I mean, there's this book by the author Bruce Wright when I was back in school. It was called Black Robes, White Justice. And I just think it's important to understand as these current cases come up, as we fight about the Supreme, who's going to be on the court in the years going ahead, that it's been part and parcel of this country's centuries-long oppression and exclusion and discrimination against people of color. And so when we see positive things happening now, that it's in that context, we need, it helps to appreciate it by looking at what its history has actually been. Just a couple of things on that, I think, to frame up what we're going to talk about here, right? So the Dred Scott case, one of the most famous cases, 1857, right before the Civil War, court held that black folks, descendants of Africa, quote, had no rights which the white man was bound to respect and that they could not become U.S. citizens. And that's a very pertinent point to what we're going to talk about in terms of the, of the whole DACA question around who can be a citizen in this country and what the racist roots of that are. 1896, the separate but equal Plessy versus Ferguson case. And again, their language is being quite unapologetically expressing what the sentiments of the times were, the court writing. The white race deems itself to be the dominant race in this country. And so it is in prestige, in achievements, in education, in wealth, and in power. So I doubt not... It will continue to be for all time if it remains true to its great heritage and holds fast to the principles of constitutional liberty. That's Supreme Court of the United States. And then third, and this ties into this uh, immigration piece that we're talking about, and I actually didn't know about this while I was researching my book. There was a case, Ozawa versus United States in the 1920s, where an Asian man wanted to become a U.S. citizen. And the United States Supreme Court said, no, you can't become a U.S. citizen because you're not white. Citing back to the original immigration law that to be a citizen, you had to be a free white person, the law Trump is trying to bring back. So it's in that context, then, that the court took on these cases around immigration and also around who gets protected under the civil rights laws. Yeah, that, that kind of history really makes us appreciate more how very meaningful it was to get those two decisions recently. And so with that, let's turn to talking about them. I'm looking forward to hearing more from Stacy about understanding how the court really operates and also the role of public opinion and protests in how these cases get decided. I'm just going to quickly summarize the DACA case, the DACA decision, and Stacy, just let me know if I get anything wrong. So people in this country, who we call the dreamers, are children who were brought to the United States by their parents. Their parents were and are 
undocumented, but the U.S. is the only home that their children, these young people, have ever known. And I really love the the hashtag and the messaging. The hashtag home is here that a lot of activists have popularized on social media. And after. Congress failed to pass comprehensive immigration reform. When Obama was president, Obama went ahead and, by executive order, created a program to protect these children from deportation. And that order is called DACA, Deferred Action for Child Arrivals. And then Trump came in, and first he tried to use the children as a bargaining chip, saying he might keep DACA if Congress made more. Far-reaching pro-white changes to the country's immigration laws, and then eventually he just said, "You know what? F it. <laughs> I'm going to eliminate DACA. That's it," and essentially put all these kids and young people at risk of deportation. And that's the case that went to the Supreme Court. And Stacy, I'll just have you take it from here. Let me know if I left anything out. Charlene, you got everything right. I would just add a, a few things. One is that besides what you mentioned、uh, to be eligible for DACA, besides the requirement that the individual had been brought here by their parents when they were a child, there are also some additional requirements. They have to have continually resided in the United States for a certain amount of time. They have to be a student or have completed high school or have been honorably discharged from the military. And then there's also a requirement that a DACA recipient not have been convicted of any serious crime. Pose no threat to national security、um, and pose no threat to public safety. So there really is a there's an application process before an individual is granted DACA status. But the other thing I would add is that besides being protected against deportation, the other important component of DACA is that once you are approved for DACA participation, you get the ability to work lawfully. You get work authorization. And that is really critical for people to be able to fully participate in society, and not have to work in some kind of unlawful status and and be in the shadows. Essentially, in fact, there were lawyers on this case who were dreamers who had DACA status. There was a, a brief filed a few weeks ago that highlighted the role that tens of thousands of DACA recipients are playing in responding to the COVID nineteen pandemic. There are dreamers who have DACA status who are working as doctors, nurses. Nursing assistants and health technicians, and and for the 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 brief warned that if the court were to undo their status and make them subject to deportation and remove their ability to work lawfully, that would have really presented a catastrophic problem for the healthcare system in the United States because the Dreamers are making such huge contributions to healthcare among other essential functions during the pandemic. That's right. I think it's easy. To forget, I think people think of these dreamers as all of them being young people and kids, but a lot of them are adults who are, like you said, already contributing so significantly to so many sectors in our society. The other case that we also really want to talk about、uh, has to do with the workplace protections for LGBT workers. Stacy, can you summarize that case and, in very general, essentially layperson's language, just give us an overview of it? So, in that case, the question that the court was deciding was whether Title VII, which is part of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, prohibits discrimination based on sexual orientation or transgender status. 
Title VII, is, as you probably know, prohibits discrimination based on race. It also prohibits discrimination based on an individual's sex. And interestingly, that was actually added to the Civil Rights Act of 1964 as a poison pill. Uh, some conservatives who opposed the Civil Rights Act hoped that that would, would kill it in Congress. But instead, it made it in there. And the prohibition on sex discrimination has resulted in numerous advances and, and legal protections as a result. So it's sort of the, an example of unintended consequences of, of the political wrangling that occurs in Congress. Um, so no one argued in this case that in 1964, Congress, when Congress used the word sex, it also meant to prohibit discrimination based on sexual orientation or transgender status. But of course, in 1964, Congress didn't intend to cover many things that Title VII is, is now viewed as prohibiting, including sexual harassment at work. So in this case, the Supreme Court had to decide, does that extend to discrimination against LGBT individuals? And in a six to three decision that was authored by Justice Gorsuch, which was a surprise to many people, the court held that it does violate Title VII when someone is discriminated against in the workplace based on sexual orientation or based on transgender status. And the reasoning of the court was that if you fire somebody because of their sexual orientation or because of their transgender status, that is at least in part based on the person's sex. And an example that the court gave explains why that's the case. Imagine that you have two employees, one is female and one is male, and both of them are attracted to men. If you're firing the male and you're firing him because he's attracted to other men, you're firing him in part based on his sex because you're not firing the female worker who is attracted to men. Or if you have two identical employees, they both present as female, but one was born male and one was born female, you're treating them differently based on sex identification at birth if you fire the person who is presenting as a different sex than the sex that they were assigned at birth. So it was really a strict textualist analysis by Justice Gorsuch, and he was joined by the four liberals on the court as well as by Chief Justice Roberts. So the question is kind of how do, you, do we get here, right? And so that's, that's what I wanted to see if you could share some of your experience today. So you were, you were a Supreme Court clerk working for Justice Breyer. So we're going to play a short clip here of Pam Carlin, who argued the LGBTQ case for the Supreme Court. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. When an employer fires a male employee for dating men but does not fire female employees who date men, he violates Title VII. The attempt to carve out discrimination against men for being gay from Title VII cannot be administered with either consistency or integrity. In the words of the en banc Second Circuit, it forces judges to result, resort to lexical bean counting, where they count up the frequency of epithets such as fag, gay, queer, real man and femme, to determine whether or not discrimination is based on sex or sexual orientation. That attempt is futile because when a man is discriminated against for being gay, he is discriminated against for not conforming to an expectation about how men should behave. So you have that. That was in October. And then we have this decision in June that the court arrives at this opinion with Gorsuch, who was a uh, you know, conservative justice writing the opinion. So what happens in that time period? They go back after the oral arguments. How does it work in terms of 
getting to a majority opinion and getting it written? And what, and what are the mechanics of that? Well, the first step is that after the oral argument, the justices hold a conference. And what they do during that conference is they go around the room from the most junior justice to the most senior justice. And they, each justice says how they believe the case should come out and why. And based on what the justices say, the court can tell which side has majority support. And so after the conference, the opinions are assigned and the senior justice in the majority assigns the majority opinion. And what happens then is the justices go back to their chambers, they work with their law clerks, and they draft the majority opinion. The majority opinion then gets sent around to all of the other chambers. Justices who are in the majority can decide to sign on to that opinion or they can decide to write a concurring opinion or in some rare cases, a, a justice might decide that they no longer agree with the opinion now that they see what's written, and they might switch sides. Sometimes it's, it's rare, but you do have a, a majority that flips after an opinion circulates. And the other justices, once the majority opinion circulates, begin also writing their dissenting opinions, and then that gets circulated. So how, how much do you think outside pressure and concerns about how it'll look or how it'll be perceived or kind of criticisms that they get. How much do you think that factors into either the thinking of the justices and or the actual decisions that they arrive at? Well, I think it's important to remember that the justices are people of this world, just like the rest of us. So as society changes, the justices change as well. There's a, a very famous story from the court's decision in the 1980s uh, that, that upheld the prohibition on, uh, on sodomy, the laws that made it criminal to be gay, essentially, where Justice Powell said that he had never met a gay person. Hmm. And when he was saying that, he was actually talking to a law clerk who Justice Powell did not know was gay. Wow. Right now, you would not meet a Supreme Court justice who doesn't know gay people, uh, who doesn't have friends, most likely, who are, who are gay, uh, because it, we're just living in a different society now where LGBT people are not forced into the closet as much as they were back in the 1980s. And so that certainly influences the justices. Also, the justices do know that they are an institution that gets a lot of public attention, and they don't want to be seen as a tool of the Trump administration or a tool of one particular political party. And, and that is something that certainly plays a role in how the justices write their opinions and how the justices explain themselves to the world. And most people would say it also plays a role in, in how the justices decide what side they're going to come out on in some of these key cases. Yeah, we had this clip where you have Alito referencing that concern. He says, we might get criticized for saying this, such and such, and how would you deal with that? And it really shows his awareness of those sensitivities. So we'll play that clip here. May I ask you to respond to what some people will say about this court if we rule in your favor? And what they will say is that whether Title VII should prohibit discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation is a big policy issue. And it is a different policy issue from the one that Congress thought it was addressing in 1964. How would we respond to that question? I, and I guess they say, my other question is, what about internal criticism, right? And do, how do they feel about or worry about being attacked or criticized by the other justices, right? So it's in this, the DACA case, it was striking. I guess it's not unique to the DACA case, but Justice Thomas frequently attacks the other people, 
right? So in the, the DACA opinion, he says, there are some quotes from his opinion. He says, today the majority makes the mystifying determination that this rescission of DACA was unlawful. Today's decision must be recognized for what it is, an effort to avoid a politically controversial but legally correct decision. Such timidity forsakes the court's duty to apply the law according to neutral principles. So I know that's a little bit Thomas's personality, but does concern about being attacked by the other justices factor into how they arrive at their opinions? Well, these are nine individuals who know that they will be working alongside one another probably for the rest of their lives Mm -hmm. or for for a very long time. So the justices know that they need to get along with one another. There are certainly justices like Justice Thomas who can tend to be more harsh in their language in, in certain opinions. Uh, There are also other signals that Supreme Court justices can send about how strongly they feel about something. For example, reading a a dissenting opinion from the bench sends a signal. But I think ultimately the Supreme Court justices get beyond their differences and overlook the criticisms because they do have to work together side by side in these cases over the years. And so they're more likely when when there's something like that in an opinion to decide to insert a, a footnote responding to that kind of rhetoric as opposed to having it affect uh, how they come out on a particular issue or affect their relationship. So Stacey, I'm going to jump in here because I have a burning question. Speaking of the members of the court, I'm like so many people, especially progressives, especially progressive women who love RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and uh, also one of those people who is just like, always crossing fingers and thinking about her and her health. And I know she's 87 and always just kind of like, we know you've given us so much, but please <laughs> keep going. She's just such a badass um, and I admire her so much. I'm wondering what she's like and what insight can you share with us about who she is? Well, I would say that Justice Ginsburg is an extremely careful, thoughtful and measured justice just like she was when she was an attorney before she was nominated to to the D.C. Circuit and then to the U.S. Supreme Court. In many ways, she is not a liberal firebrand like Justices Brennan and Marshall were or like many judges who were on the circuit courts. But she has certainly, over her entire career, stood by her principles, stood by her legal philosophy, and been very consistent in her approach to issues of law. And so as a person, she is not somebody who you would think of as becoming notorious. Her personality is very shy in in a lot of ways. She speaks very quietly. She speaks very slowly. But she certainly is deserving, in my view, of all of the the praise and adulation that she's gotten from uh, the younger generation as as well as those of us who are more middle-aged and older. Yeah, I've loved how uh, the different generations have just been drawn to, I think, like, you know, her strength and her strength of conviction and um, the fact that I see young people, young women, even young men with um, T-shirts with her face on them and <laughs> is, is just really cool. Yeah, no, it's amazing. And I really, I actually highly commend people to check out the documentary, the film RBG that was done about her. I mean, didn't she go to law school when she like had young children in terms of what stuff that she had to deal with. I mean, her career has really been incredible. You think of all that she's accomplished. And, and for a woman of her, her generation, just how hard those barriers were to overcome to get to where she yeah. where Hold she on, is. RBG. <laughs> so lastly, Stacy, we often like to end each episode with a lighter, more personal question. And so 
because we are recording this today, which is actually the 100th day of shelter in place in the Bay Area. And I keep saying, who's counting? <laughs> and many of us parents are saying, we're counting. I'm a parent. And I just say, wow, 100 days just being with my family. It is something else. So my question is, what thing have you done, however small, during this time to take a mental health break during each day or as often as you can? Kind of reminds me of like, remember when John Stewart had said like that moment of Zen? Do you have a, any kind of practice or habit of a moment of Zen that you give yourself? Well, Susan, is, she likes the long days. She doesn't like after, was it the summer solstice, when you hit the point where you, the days start to get shorter. I think that was this, uh, this week. And so she really wanted to mark that occasion. And that, I mean, it's fun. And then our, our, all of our schedules are so busy. Remember when we first started the, the shelter in place, everyone's like, oh, you have so much time, et cetera. I don't know where that is. It's like, we're each like in the same house. We're rushing past each other, this meeting, this activity, and never get to pause. So we actually took time. We have this, you know, nice backyards. So we have a little glider out there. So we walked out in the glider and just sat there and sat there in the sun for, you know, a little while. It was this moment of Zen. Right, both in terms of a, the typical day as well as just marking the, the transition of the season. So that was a really nice, nice experience that we had. So nice. I'm just smiling thinking about it. Do we, Stacey, do you want to go next? Uh, sure. I've actually been taking time from almost every day to go out for a bike ride in San Francisco. Good for you. And there, there are fewer cars on the road, and there are a lot of roads that are closed off in San Francisco. So it's been a particularly nice time to ride my bike. And I've actually found that I've, I, I always ride either to water or to a view. Uh, so up to Twin Peaks or out to Ocean Beach. And I've, I've found that I've also gotten a chance to see both the, the natural beauty of San Francisco and of the Bay Area, but also just to see different neighborhoods. I've ridden through industrial neighborhoods, all different kinds of neighborhoods to find different parts of the city. And it's been a, a great way to get away from being in a house with five other individuals and get away from work and get away. From wow. <laughs> I got to do something like what you're doing. That sounds amazing. I highly recommend it. Yeah. I got to get my bike out more often. For me, I was thinking, I was, I was literally thinking about how the fact that every two weeks, there is one moment of every two weeks, one day where for about an hour, I get to shut my bedroom door and nobody bothers me. And that's right now when I'm recording a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> this is my moment of Zen. And, and, and the, largely a lot of that is true. I just, I love what we do. And it really does allow me to close the door and nobody bothers me. But then, uh, you know, uh, the other thing that I like to do for really like it's such a guilty pleasure and I'm going to say it with no shame is in these times online shopping but not just any online shopping I've been enjoying going on Etsy and Etsy now has a feature where you can just shop from black owned businesses so I you know everybody check that out and Etsy if those of you don't know it's a website where you can buy things from artists and artisans and crafters so there's all sorts of very cool things that you're directly contributing to those artists and you can shop and support black owned businesses. So I've been, I enjoy a number of online shopping experiences, but Etsy is right up there with the, that they, you can support black owned businesses that way. Great. All right. So that's all the time we have for this episode. 
Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Thank you to our special guest, Stacey Layton, for joining us and for all of her excellent work in the legal arena for the people of this country. If you haven't already, please join our mailing list by going to democracyincolor.com. Help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang and April Elkier, recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, appreciate the progress we're making and the shifts in the country and keep the faith.